0: How cool is it that your kid feels comfortable enough to do the thing that bucks the traditional norms? And how cool is it that your kid is brave enough to do that? I would also say that you are not alone. There are tons and tons of of people that are in the same situation and you will find your people.
1: Even though it's incredibly hard sometimes. It can be
0: incredibly hard.
1: Most trans kids don't actually walk up to you and say, Mom, I'm trans, when they come out. Most of the time, they show early signs that they're exploring their gender and that they don't feel right in their body. Some parents welcome gender exploration. Others try and shut it down. And some shut it down without even knowing it. And when they do, they often unintentionally shut down a child's willingness to be vulnerable and open with them about gender and other difficult subjects for years to come. You're listening to Camp Wildheart, your guide for raising a transgender child and nurturing an affirming family. I'm your host, Mackenzie Dunham. So how do you avoid closing the door on the coming out conversation before it even happens? How do you encourage your child to be their most authentic self and find the courage to rumble with the discomfort of knowing that they will face a world that continuously tells them that they're not good enough, judges them and you every step of the way? On our show today, we're going to hear from Tina. Tina's daughter was assigned male at birth, but she knew rather quickly that her kiddo was not a boy. Tina is a white cisgender woman. Cisgender or cis means that her gender identity matches her assigned sex at birth. Tina is the founder of Kindred PR and executive director of Cause Influence, a nonprofit dedicated to amplifying marginalized voices. She's also a sought-after speaker in sustainable entrepreneurship with a focus on such issues as minority representation in media and technology. You can see her writing in Forbes, The Huffington Post, Thrive Global, Today, and more. She's also the mom of two children and a dog, and Tina's daughter is eight years old at the time of this recording. As a side note, I need to let you know that every parent who shares at Camp Wildheart does so with the consent and permission of their child. To protect their child's privacy though, we often remove or change the child's name. So in this episode, we opted to remove her name entirely, and we simply call her Tina's kiddo. Tina and I sat down to talk about the early signs of gender expansiveness in her child, and to take a peek at the playbook she and her family have created to support her daughter. She bravely shares how her family has navigated life so far, what keeps her up at night, and what inspires her about her daughter. Tina, welcome to Camp Wildheart. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us and sharing your story about your kiddo.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm excited and congratulations on your launch.
1: Thank you so much. I think one of the things that I'm most excited to talk with you about is that you've got this really awesome kiddo and she is just a ball full of kindness and magic and I have gotten to know her and you, and I'm really wondering when did you first recognize that she was different?
0: We've always known that my kiddo was not gender typical, and when she was first born, she used to she used to hold on to a washcloth, and when she learned how to talk. Uh, so this happened for, for years. When she learned how to talk, we realized that that washcloth represented hair. And it was like she was carrying a doll around with her. And she's always gravitated toward what we culturally would think of our, our typical female behaviors and, and toys.
1: Right out the gate, essentially. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Was there any sort of confusion from anyone else in your family about what those behaviors meant or looked like, or was there any sort of pushback from anybody in your family?
0: Absolutely. Uh, When my kiddo was in preschool, that's really, I mean, when when your kid's a toddler and they're running around the house, these things aren't as much of an issue because they can wear dresses and they're not going to be judged. And Mm -hmm. you kind of have the sense of like, it's just my kid when my kiddo went to preschool is when I had to start figuring out, okay, what, what does she bring with her to preschool? How much of that is safe for her to express in that environment? And I remember asking questions of people that I trusted about, you know, I have a lot of friends in the LGBTQ community and I asked their guidance and even my friends in the LGBTQ community were really hesitant because they had such a rough time that they wanted to protect my kid in the same way that I always want to protect my kid. So I did get pushback about letting her express her full self in public. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I needed to really just educate myself to navigate.
1: How did you navigate that? Did you screen preschools, interview people?
0: It's a good question. I was always an advocate of letting my kiddo be her fullest expression of herself in every environment. And I've fought those battles since she was really young. And I remember purchasing a backpack for her that had princesses on it that she took to her preschool. And she was really hurt by the comments that she experience from friends, and even from teachers. And her behavior was policed in that way. So after she took the backpack to preschool, she wanted a different one. So I supported her in, in choosing something different. And we had conversations about why some people are not educated about the difference between sex and gender identity. And that that was probably going to be something that we would continue to talk about and get comfortable with. But I supported what she was comfortable with at the time.
1: I bet that was really heartbreaking to witness. It
0: was because when you have a kid who is so incredibly brave Mm -hmm. at the age of three or four, to the extent that she is doing something mm-hmm. that she knows is going to make her the center of attention and in, in maybe a way that she doesn't want to be. Mm-hmm. And to get her ostracized from friend groups at a time when you really just want to be accepted by your friends to know that she was brave enough to show that side of herself and then be rejected for that was incredibly difficult to witness as a parent. And on the other side of that, I just was so Proud and awed by her.
1: That spirit, the ability to know exactly who you are and to not be afraid to hide it.
0: Yeah. I think. Or not be afraid to
1: show it, rather.
0: I think that uh, a lot of adults
1: could learn from
0: that vulnerability.
1: Absolutely. When your kiddo was going to preschool, did she go as she, her? Or was she still going as he him at that point?
0: When my kiddo was in preschool, she did not identify as she her at that time.
1: At what point did she start to ask for those for that change? When she was in
0: kindergarten, she came home from school one day and sat next to me on the couch and told me that she wanted to be a girl, and she wanted to go by she and her and I asked her what does that look like and she told me she said I want to wear dresses and I want to get my nails done and I want to do all of these these girl things my next step was having conversations with her school to make sure that it was going to be a safe environment for her and supporting her in that public transition that you know we already had a, a foundation for at home.
1: And- was the school receptive or was that its own battle you know i think
0: that i'm very fortunate
1: we're we're
0: all very fortunate to be living in a time when people are more conscious of these issues and there are there's legislation in place to support kids like mine and i think one of the things that i would want your viewers to understand is that those things are in place for a reason and it it matters so much to families like mine. So in that respect, it was like the precedent was already set. I also was very fortunate to have sort of followed in the path of another mom of a transgender kiddo at my kid's school. And Mm -hmm. she was an advocate and really helped to change minds in the school and the district. And that was a great thing as well. We did definitely still experience some adversity and also just some misinformed viewpoints. And those were things that we had to navigate as they came up. And we've had some difficult conversations.
1: And I think we continue to have to do that. It does help, though, when you are not the only family like yours in a particular school setting. I know there's a lot of kids who find themselves being the first kid at their school or the only kid at their school.
0: I I do feel really fortunate that we have other kids. But the other thing that I'll say to that point is just because there aren't kids that you know about that are going through something similar, It's likely that there are a lot of kids that do identify as a different gender and that potentially haven't had the opportunity to express it. And when you start to open yourself up, you
1: find your people really quickly. Absolutely. You make a really great point because the numbers on this generation of kids that are coming up, they have so much more permission to be themselves. And so you see adults who are like, oh, oh, wait, wait, I get, I get to be myself now? And there's kids who are like, yeah, we're leading the way. We're doing this. Uh, and it's just a really cool thing to witness. I know plenty of kids who were like, I have been dying to come out and dying to be myself. And I couldn't until I found this other friend or I knew this other family. So it's a really special gift that you get to provide, not just to your kid, right, but to other kids like your kid. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't sound like much surprised you about her coming out.
0: No, although I will say that I didn't know much about what it meant to be transgender before my daughter asked explicitly to be a girl. I just kind of figured that my kiddo was going to be gay. And that was sort of, you know, culturally accepted and very much in the narrative. And people didn't know as much about what it meant to be transgender. And these experiences were not as explored in the public domain. When she asked to be a girl, I just, that's what we're dealing with. What does that look like? And had to, and had to become
1: educated. I know a lot of parents that I've sat with over the years have said, I was prepared for gay. This is something else. I was not, I didn't even know to think about this. Right. How did you go about educating yourself and her um, Mm -hmm. and your family about what it meant to be transgender?
0: Good question. So, my undergrad is in psychology. So, I knew at least enough to know where to look for information resources. So, that's what I did. I really started soaking up material and the actual scientific literature. And I did that pretty extensively as I was trying to figure out how to navigate it best with the people that would be in her influential sphere. So when I when I talked about gender identity and the difference between gender identity and sex, understanding sort of the way to, to communicate that with kindergarten aged people and getting the mm-hmm. schools counselor involved in that conversation. That was one part of it. And then figuring out how to take the information that I had learned and package that in a way that would be received by family members and, and friends of mine. Cause I think there is just a lot of misinformation and because we are collectively learning about what it is to be transgender. I yeah. think we can get a little bit culturally myopic, like One story is the same as all stories. We tend to generalize and there's such an incredible scope and just number of experiences from for every individual that I wanted to really make sure that I could personalize the experience through that education piece as well. So when I did let my family know, the thing that I emphasized was in the research that she really needs our support and that's how to keep her safe. Yeah. And, um, and that's what the literature says is that, you know, if we want to keep her from things like depression and, um, and suicide and some of these like real issues that yeah. trans kiddos have to grapple with, we need to be supportive. And that's the first that's the first thing before anything else. We can get educated on the science and whatnot, but the first thing is to just be on
1: board. Yeah. Did you have anybody who couldn't get on board? My dad
0: is a very, I mean, he's an old white man Mm -hmm. and he is conservative. And the way that he looks at, women generally is pretty outdated. The way that he looks at men is very much like the stereotypical macho kind of male is preferential. And so he really struggled with it. I didn't hear anything from him for a little while. And to his credit, my stepmom started reading. I guess they they were upset about the way that I was handling my kiddos transition in that I let her express herself and, uh, they did some reading on their own. And what they found is that actually, if, if you actually look at the literature, we were doing the right thing. So they came around, I wouldn't say perfectly, but they came around and were thankful for that, that education. And also understanding of the fact that we all have a history with the environment and different biases that we have to, you know, deal with. And there's room for people to grow into, you know, understanding.
1: Absolutely. Was there any particular piece of literature that you found to be really impactful or was it mainly statistics? Yeah. Uh,
0: so one thing that I cite widely that is written really well for the general audience is there's a Scientific American, they did a whole, uh, an issue on gender identity. Mm-hmm. And that has been really helpful.
1: Awesome. I'll be sure to put a link to where people can find that particular issue in the show notes sort of going back to when your I was little, maybe pre this is my hair. Do you remember just the way that you and your husband talked about gender? Or did you talk about it? Or how did you teach your kids what it meant to be a girl or a boy?
0: I think I was always pretty conscious of the fact that I had biases. With respect to gender culturally, so I tried, I always tried to give both of my kids every opportunity to gravitate toward what they actually, you know, wanted rather than what we culturally would project onto them in terms Mm -hmm. of gender identity. I'm sure that I've made mistakes with respect to that. And I can think of particular situations when my kiddo was young and in the department store and wanted a dress. And I would say, oh, but look at this, you know, these pants are nice too. And I'm sure that I I have done things like that. Um, So definitely have my own, you know, biases to check, but I did try to make sure that she could navigate her, her gender identity in the way that felt authentic.
1: What do you think has been the most challenging part of parenting a gender-expansive kiddo? The most
0: challenging part is definitely dealing with fear for her safety. Mm. My kid is awesome. I know that she's amazing and brave and wonderful and empathetic and brings a lot of joy to everyone that she comes into contact with. And so that part is easy.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's the fear of, it's the fear of what happens when she's outside of our home and people that are not educated and feel very strongly because this has, I, it baffles me a little bit how divisive this is. I've done interviews like this before and I have gotten hate mail and I have gotten threats. Protecting her from
1: that hate is the hardest part. Yeah. She's just get to be herself, you know? <laughs> She's awesome. She's so awesome. She's so fun. <laughs> And I feel like anybody who would meet her and label her as anything other than wonderful and awesome is just missing out on so much.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I give her a lot of credit because she is... She is unapologetically herself Mm. in a way that most of us would strive to be. And she has single-handedly changed a lot of minds and is a wonderful advocate in an eight-year-old's body. Mm -hmm. And she gives people a lot of grace
1: to make mistakes. Yeah, she does. So what sorts of things do you have to consider when you think about sleepovers and mm. m- she's met a new friend on the bus and I mean what comes into your mind as mom in this mm. sort of fear and protective mode that is such
0: that's such a good question and I honestly have I mean I've settled into how I handle it I don't know if it's the right way but Whenever she is invited to sleepovers and things of that nature, I recognize that there's potentially a safety issue and also just a psychological safety issue for everyone that's involved in the sleepover, because a lot of parents would feel like they want to be able to have conversations with their children if something comes up. And so I am just very blunt with people that my kiddo ends up on playdates with and mm-hmm. I'm very straightforward about the situation and how they respond to that is a pretty good gauge of whether or not
1: they get to be my kid's friend. Does she feel okay about that process as well? I mean, have you and her had that conversation about why we, why this is important?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a really tough thing to navigate because it's such a funny thing to have to talk about your gender identity and your, you know, biological sex.
1: Like really, you're talking about genitals. I know.
0: Yeah. It's such a funny thing to have to have Mm -hmm. these conversations and it's so uncomfortable and, and weird, but you know, it is a safety issue. So that's what my kiddo and I have talked about. And she seems comfortable and confident in navigating that at this point.
1: What do you think you've learned about yourself? through this process
0: I have learned that I am a lot tougher than I ever thought I was (sighs) and I've learned to have a thick skin I've also learned that I can learn a lot from my kids
2: Mm -hmm.
0: she's incredibly brave and kids tend to know intuitively the kinder things to do they don't have as much baggage as adults tend to bring to these types of discussions. So mm-hmm. I think being open to learning from our kids is, a, is something that I've learned.
1: I've definitely experienced that when it comes to who has a problem with this, it's usually the adults. Yeah, right. Not always, but more often than not, it's the adults. What kinds of questions do parents, other parents ask you about her? That's a
0: good question. I think it's meaningful because I get a lot. What did you do to influence her transition? Like, how Mm -hmm. did you make her into a girl? And it's like, Mm -hmm. well, if you know (laughs) anything about me, (laughs) I tend to buck the traditional gender norms and
1: I don't, it's, 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 she's her.
0: And that's, that's something that I get a lot.
1: That's a really common thing that I hear a lot of parents ask themselves yeah. in my office is what did I do? And the answer is nothing other right. than, like you said, create this environment where your kid feels safe enough to be who they are. Right. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. That's a very cool thing. So what message would you want to share with another parent who is experiencing maybe their young kiddo starting to express their gender in a way that doesn't fit what they were expecting?
0: First of all, how cool is it that your kid feels comfortable enough to do that? Because it is not easy to do the thing that bucks the traditional norms. And how cool is it that your kid is brave enough to do that? I would also say that you are not alone. There are tons and tons of of people that are in the same situation and you will find your people.
1: Yeah. Even though it's incredibly hard sometimes.
0: It can be incredibly hard.
1: Yeah. Well, Tina, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and just letting us get a little peek at what an awesome brave kiddo you have. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm really excited to continue listening to this awesome podcast and finding
1: more more of our tribe. Tina's absolutely right. You're not alone. and coming to campfire at Camp Wildheart will hopefully help you feel that. In this next segment, We're gonna hear from Dr. Linda Hawkins. Linda will be lending us her expertise and answering some common questions that she and I receive from parents as we do this work, as well as questions that may have come up for you as you listened to Tina's story. Linda is the director of the Affirmative Therapy for Transgender Communities Training Program at Widener University, and director of the Gender and Sexuality Development Program at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She has more than 20 years of experience as a clinician.
2: So I have a question. So I'm confused. So... I have a question. But what about... So... I have a question.
1: So, I want to start at the very beginning. Like, we're going to go trans 101. So what's the difference between sex and gender?
2: Thinking about the way I like to talk about this with parents, I really like to talk about it in, in relation to development. So it helps to kind of separate it out into two times and spaces of healthy childhood development. Typically, gender starts um, to percolate, uh, for those of the coffee themes, to percolate into a child's being. From the time they're born, they're taking in cues and messages and information about what it means to be a boy or a girl. And what we understand from childhood development and research is that with every message that kids are getting about what does a boy do versus what does a girl do they're they're populating what i like to call these little post-its in their brain um, and on one post-it it says boy and on the other post-it it says girl and as they're gathering information from family from media from church from school with their pencils they're putting little pieces of information onto those post-its so boy might start to be Blue, dad, brother, balls, running, all these things that are that you know we have these generalizations in our societies and in our communities. and girl might be pink, ponytail, rainbows, hugs. And we know that this is populating because for kids who experience healthy development, by age three, we start hearing what's on their post-its. We start hearing, Janie, who is identifying as a girl, say, Janie's a girl. Uh, mommy's a girl. Uh, Fluffy, mm-hmm. because Fluffy has a pink collar, Fluffy's a girl. And then, you know, in our language-rich society, we, we do things like, yes, Janie, you're a girl. You have long hair. You love dresses. You're just like sister and mommy. And then when Janie says things like, Janie's a boy. Janie loves balls. Well, Janie... You can love balls but you're not a boy so there's corrective tone you know and then what really happens between three and five years old is little ones start to either realize that those post-its are right they might use an eraser and move things around from Mm post-it to post-it but then by five i like to say that the post-it gets laminated i'm a past educator so i like thinking in these these kind of concrete terms and and I the think fi- that
1: parents can definitely relate to this idea of like <laughs> yeah. this is final.
2: <laughs> right. And for those parents who have had kids go through these ages, they might recall conversations that were seemed kind of rigid, like little mm-hmm. ones who were like, "No. Long hair is on girls only. Boys can't have long hair." And you're like, "Where did this come from? This is natural development." If you mm-hmm. even try to raise a child, as many folks and communities have tried to do genderless raising, you have kids who then are just kind of sticking themselves into gender roles mm-hmm. because it's actually natural development. So gender versus sex and sexuality. Gender is how somebody relates to the world's rules and regulations around gender. For a cisgender person, that might actually really match with the sex they were signed at birth. So the sex being their anatomy, their chromosomes, their um, phenotype, their makeup. For Mm -hmm. a trans kid, that's why I see kids as young as five years old coming into the clinic or coming from referred from their pediatrician's office because Janie keeps saying, I know what's on that girl post-it and that ain't me. What's Mm -hmm. on the boy post-it is me and I'm going to keep saying it until you listen to me. So our trans kids whose gender rules and roles and expectations don't match with the sex they were assigned at birth or their genitals or their phenotype, those kids are trans and we get to meet them and welcome them into the world.
1: So when kids are exploring their gender... Usually, you know, before age five, you know, a common question that I get from parents is, how do I know this isn't just play? Like, how, like, could they just be imagining this? Or is this going to stick? So how do you respond to those types of questions when you get them?
2: First, when I get the question, I'm always grateful that a parent is willing to even ask that question.
1: Absolutely,
2: I first applaud them for even just being open to their brain, opening their heart to be ready for an answer that might be something they didn't expect. So my favorite job in life was as a preschool teacher in Seattle, Washington, and I tell everybody that. And and so I've seen lots and lots of kids have typical developmental play around gender. So this is when Joey puts on a dress in the play area and says, I'm going to be mommy today. And everybody's like, all right. Well, in Seattle, we we were saying, yeah, (laughs) all right, go for it. And Janie puts on the fireman's hat and says, I'm going to be a fireman today, or I want to be dad today. Now, that's also a very typical part of childhood developments. And it's a really explorative time. And what we see is that the majority of children do have what's called gender play or gender exploration. The majority of children do not continue with that idea, with that exploration beyond maybe a month or two. So when I have parents saying, is this a phase? Is this going to pass? I like to talk about what are, what are exploration phases and what are identity development phases. And they tend to last about three to five months for most, most kiddos, even mm-hmm. into middle childhood and even into some early teenage years. Phases are tried on in about three to five-month periods. So I'm like, all right, so let's see as a family how much leverage do you have for this type of exploration for your child, and then let's touch base back together if we're still there in six months. Now, some families would say, it's really not okay for our son to wear a dress, or it's not okay for our son to wear a dress outside of the house, so it can be in the house, or maybe just not to church or something, but setting those parameters and then making some rationale for why those parameters exist. Like, okay, it's the middle of winter, so a dress is not going to keep you warm enough, but not not setting it as we're embarrassed of who you are or we don't want to see this play. And I've had some parents say, like, we are embarrassed and we don't want this to happen. And so I do some harm reduction around, okay, so what's, where is this coming from for you and just letting your son wear a dress isn't going to make him gay if he's cisgender it's also going to not going to make him trans if he's cisgender dispelling some of those fears and those myths around allowing some leverage and flexibility uh, in childhood exploration that really in the long run keeps the door wide open When it comes to a child communicating their thoughts and their feelings to their parents, shutting down that communication, closing that door and saying, this doesn't exist for you or our family, it can be the start of shutting down lots of future communication. So when I put things into that range and realm, I find that parents start to find different areas of leverage. So they just didn't know that they needed to add those into their parenting skills quite yet.
1: Yeah. I talk with parents often about the long game. Mm
2: -hmm. Long game.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right? We've got these short-term activities that we're doing, but we have to think a long game. You know, when we're 15, Mm -hmm. what do we want our relationship to look like? And because we're laying the foundation for that now.
2: Very, very true. Very well stated. Yeah. Yeah. Long game.
1: I think you and I probably have also fielded a lot of, you know, did I do something to make my kid this way?
2: Yeah. Yeah it's and it, the i feel like our, our society as a whole instills guilt on parents constantly oh yeah and i'm i'm not a parent i'm the cool aunt i always say that <laughs> god didn't want me to be a parent so that i could help other parents be great parents and there's just such a guilt society and a guilt message for all parents you know if your kids not doing things a certain way it's it's your fault and you're doing something wrong so I, yeah. I tend to start from that as just the foundation of negative parent coaching in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, just to generalize and kind of step away from the gender piece for a second and and yeah. have what you just did, which is like, oh yes.
1: Yeah, I'm a parent and I definitely feel that yeah. every day. <laughs>
2: And, and so just like giving yourself a break to say, OK, so you're now putting this one on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the reality that if we look at transgender identity and the genetic makeup of somebody as being trans is something that is a natural variation in human life, then, you know, we, we don't say that a parent did something wrong to have a child who has red hair. We don't say that a parent did something wrong, right. at least now when a child is born and left-handed and I bring these specifically Mm -hmm. up that redheads and left-handed people were vilified in the same fashion that trans folks have been vilified by our world. The rates of trans identity is now looking very similar to our left-handed population percentages and rates and similar to our redhead population and rates. So I try my best to minimize the internalization of guilt. I can't minimize how much society sucks when it comes to imposing parental guilt. And then I like to switch the switch the conversation about what is your fault mm. to these amazing parents. So what is your fault is creating a home and a family where your child feels safe enough to tell you something like this. Absolutely. That is definitely your fault. And mm-hmm. so the fact that now you're holding something that feels hard is your joy as a parent because right now your kid isn't holding something that's really hard. Yeah. So I, I like to use a little bit of humor with my my supportive parents and that kind of taking that, that nervousness and that worry and shifting it to like actually you've done something pretty terrific. Yeah. And Absolutely. that's your fault.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what are the numbers these days around kids who have a gender expansive identity?
2: So that that's like the million dollar question. Mm-hmm. And um and parents often will come into the clinic and say, you know, why is there this explosion of trans kids like it used to be? Minuscule in the data, and now it's like every tenth middle schooler is trans in some way. And so the the history of the the population data is that historically people were identified as transgender and and counted or tallied as a result of showing up to a gender clinic and having medical changes to their body that then got them onto the list of a truly transgender person, let's just say in the United States. And so you have to think 20 years ago, there were kind of three main gender clinics in the United States. Mm -hmm. So these were very self-selected people who had the the means and the capacities to get to a gender clinic, to do things. And not all trans people want medical care. Um, Yeah. So you can just from that imagine, okay, so if the folks who actually got to a clinic were one one hundredth of the population, there were a lot of folks out there. And then we started having more clinics building up. And then there was this, Oh my gosh, if you build them, they will come. There's this surge. Well, mm-hmm. yeah. And so now, so my, my clinic in Philadelphia was the fourth pediatric clinic in the United States in a major medical setting, uh, and that was in 2014, and now there's upwards of 40. So just because you build a clinic does not then make a patient population. The patient population is there waiting for our clinics to be built. So now the data is, we're gathering data in new and broader ways. For the first time ever, um, I think it started last year, the youth risk behavior survey that is given to all high schoolers in public schools throughout the nation included a question about gender identity for the first time ever. It's amazing. So we have, now we have clinic data and we have, Out of clinic data. But what we're missing is all the kids who are in parochial, private charter schools who aren't part of the YRBS or the youth risk behavior survey, as well as those trans kids who have been bullied out of school. Yeah. So, um, you know, we've, we've moved from a under 1% to now the range is anywhere from 1.3 to 2.7. Um so that the the number is going up because of the way that we're collecting data as well as the ways in which society is growing and evolving to make space for people to be themselves and proclaim their true identities. And then the the last thing I'll say about the data that's also really challenging is the definition of trans. So mm-hmm. for some for some data collectors The definition of trans needs to be what I call re-binary people. So somebody who is assigned male at birth who then feels very comfortable checking the female box. Right. And for those who are assigned female at birth, those individuals who are going to check the male box. What this leaves out is what was also identified within the research from the national research that uh, was done in, I think, 2017, surveying folks throughout the United States, it was about 33,000 people, and a third of those respondents said that they identify as non-binary. Yeah. So if you take 1.3 to 2.7 and think those are just the two-thirds of the trans population who identify as re-binary, then we need to add another big percentage of folks who identify as non-binary. I always like to say it's more than you think. And the most important percentage for me is the percent of kids who are able to articulate who they are and get support and help and are not sitting in mental health facilities being depressed and anxious and not really understanding why.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Something kept popping into my head while you were talking about that. And, I, and it, it, the mentality around if you build it, they will come. Right, like, well, there's more clinics now, so people think it's a thing. It, in my head, connects back to the same sort of rhetoric around, well, our COVID numbers are going up because we're doing so much more testing, right? It's not like those COVID cases didn't exist, Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? It's just
1: now we know to look for them. We know how to, like, treat them and support them and that it's important that we do so. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you loved it just as much as I did. To learn more about the amazing work that Linda is doing, or if you're a clinician interested in learning more about how to do this work well, please check out the Affirmative Therapy for Transgender Communities Training Program at Widener. The program is run in a cohort model, which builds community among other clinicians doing this work. It also provides ongoing supervision and support for therapists invested in providing the highest quality care for their transgender clients. This coming cohort will likely be online, as is everything else in our lives. I've personally found this program to be invaluable and I wish I could have attended it when I first started doing this work. You can learn more at www.widener.edu slash academics slash graduate hyphen studies slash affirmative hyphen therapy Hyphen transgender hyphen communities. We'll put a link to it in the show notes, as well as a link to the issue of Scientific American that Tina referenced. Camp Wildheart is meant to be about building community, so please reach out to us. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as Wildheart Society. And if you're looking to get connected to a qualified, affirming clinician to support your family, check out wildheartsociety.org. Thanks again for joining us for Campfire. Be sure to subscribe for free to the podcast so that you don't miss out on any future campfires and give us a rating. Rating the podcast helps other people find us and we want to make sure that they know there's always a spot saved for them at Camp Wildheart.